So, Mark. Yes? I want you to imagine that you're at a holiday party. Okay. This should take extra imagination because this is not a thing you should do this year. Yeah, it's taking a lot of work. I have to say, I still get thrown off watching movies from the before times. Like, around the election, I was, like, thinking back to, like, past elections and what I had been doing in the run-up to election day, which is normally, like, canvassing and knocking on doors and stuff like that. And I realized that as I was picturing my own past in my head, I was picturing myself wearing a mask for those events. We watched The Holiday a couple weeks ago, and there's a scene where Cameron Diaz asks people for directions outside, and I still thought they are standing too close together. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, holiday party. Got Imagine it. you're at a holiday party, and let's say the star of an ABC sitcom, uh, we'll, we'll say it's Randall Park from Fresh Off the Boat. Okay. So Randall Park pulls out a sack of mysterious presents. And he says, hey, look, these are all iconic toys from your childhood, and we're going to distribute them and all play them at this party. Okay. What I want to know is, what would be the toy from your childhood that people started playing with? My first thought was Shrinky Dinks. Oh! I loved Shrinky Dinks. We had the tracing paper. I remember making Shrinky Dinks of Hobbes from Calvin and Hobbes. And tracing some other things. For some reason, even though it doesn't make sense to the timeline, I was like, Mark, you're making Hobbs and Shaw shrinky dinks? <laughs> even though, of course, Jason Statham had not yet been in a Fast and Furious movie when you would have been doing this, but that is what I thought of. No, the superior Hobbs, the stuffed tiger that comes to life inside a child's imagination. It has just occurred to me that Jason Statham might be Shaw. I don't know. I've only ever seen half of the first Fast and Furious movie on TV. The first Fast and First Furious movie? <laughs> Isn't that what it's called? First Fast, First Furious? Oh, boy. Um, I remember one of my friends had the Shrinky Dink oven, which was true luxury. We made our Shrinky Dinks the old-fashioned way. In the normal oven. In the oven. And that I also remember we had, like, the mo- Model Magic clay. Yes. That was a lot of fun. I did a lot of clay modeling. I think my mom still has some, like, animals I made out of model magic as decoration in our house. I have an aunt who's really good at it, and, like, we'll still sometimes make them as gifts. I mean, if you're good at it, go for it. But part of me is like, Mom, you gotta stop displaying my childhood art. <laughs> <laughs> it's now embarrassing to you. Yeah, it is. it is bad. There is a purple-headed, yellow bodied dog with blue polka dots that I painted in a like paint your own ceramics activity as a kid that my mom still has displayed good I think for me the iconic toy I had this Fisher Price train set that was excellent I got it for my birthday when I was pretty young and you know they're like plastic train tracks that you could assemble in different ways so every time I got to play with it you got to like set up the tracks in different ways but one of the cool things I had was this like plastic like mountain tunnel that the train tracks could go through and that was really cool and then obviously what that meant was like other action figures could hang out around the train even though they weren't to scale because like kids don't care and there'd be all kinds of weird adventures happening around the trains entirely unsurprising um let me tell you something mark trains are excellent you rarely disappoint when it comes to your brand i mean being perfectly honest like i have rarely lived in a place where i could not hear trains from my bedroom Because I grew up hearing freight trains, like, go past not far from my parents' house. And since I finished grad school, I have always lived near Metro. We got some freight trains at the too. 
Yeah, we did. I, I guess we could say where we lived since neither of us lives there now. <laughs> yeah, you can always just beep it out. I really like the idea of getting surprised with toys at a Christmas party. But again, this movie raises the eternal Santa Claus movie question of... It's an incredible problem in this franchise especially. You can't have a world where Santa Claus exists and people don't believe in him. It's just impossible. Because toys will show up on your doorstep on Christmas or under your tree on Christmas that you didn't buy. And in the first Santa Claus movie, we see him deliver a lot of presents. We don't see that this much in this one. But like in the Santa Claus, he delivers a kayak to someone. Right. Like you would check your credit card bill and see that no one had purchased these. Yeah, it's a real problem in this franchise. I think other Santa movies can get away with it. If Santa is not necessarily explicitly seen giving gifts, like, he could just be, like, the spirit of Christmas kind of deal. But in this franchise, like, what Santa does is deliver presents to people, even though they don't believe in him. And also, like, the Tooth Fairy being real. I guess no one disputes that in this movie. This might just be a universe where everyone believes in the Tooth Fairy. Everyone knows about the Tooth Fairy. Yeah. It's just Santa who is fake. Oh, God. All right, we should start talking about this movie, because I hated it. Welcome Did to We Love... Did you know that this movie is from the director of the film Tooth Fairy? That tracks. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This is a podcast dedicated to examining the least important question facing the world today. Does Hollywood holiday romance actually make any sense? And why is this man being rewarded for committing manslaughter? Okay, this is the most Tim Allen movie. And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation, or if it is a contractual requirement. We'll dig in and see what's there. And this week, as we have said, we are looking at the, I guess, legally mandated romance of the 2002 Disney sequel, The Santa Claus 2. Now, I have seen The Santa Claus, and I have seen The Santa Claus 2, but it has been- many, many times. It has been decades, and I know nothing about them. And I started this movie, and almost immediately, I was very angry that I was watching it. I know these movies extraordinarily well. I grew up, especially on the first one, I feel like somebody lent the VHS to my family, and we got into it, and then, like, bought it at some point. So this is a movie where, for me, I grew up with it around enough that its deep weirdness was the kind of thing where, as a kid, you're like, this is just what this movie is. Of course, this is how this movie works. And I feel like this was the first time I watched it, because it's been a couple of years, where I was like, what is happening? This man is so thrilled that he committed manslaughter. I mean, he's pretty alarmed in the first movie. Like, in the first movie, he hears a noise on his roof. He walks outside. He's like, he shouts like, what the heck is going on? That alarms Santa, who falls off the roof. He then is like, what the heck is happening? He's like, trying to wake up the unconscious Santa and says like, hi, I'm going through your coat to see if you have an ID so I can call somebody who can help you. And while that is happening, Santa's body disappears. And he's, like, pretty alarmed for a while there. Now, it's been, like, eight years. And I guess he is, like, as he says, this is the best thing that ever happened to me. And the elves are, like, thrilled that the new Santa is here. Was the old Santa bad? Did they not like him? They do say that Scott Calvin, SC, is the best Santa that they've had in ages. It's a terrible premise. Like, it's a terrible system for succession. Because it's it just... System. I do think it's a pretty good premise of, like, a dude suddenly gets assigned to be Santa. 
That like, is a good I have premise. not rewatched the original Santa Claus recently, but I'm pretty sure it's a much better movie than this one. Okay. I feel like the idea of someone getting drafted into being Santa against their will is a good idea. I feel like the first Santa Claus might be better. I can get on board with that. But this one was so weird, and it made me angry, and I was also bored for a lot of it. And it's a bad mix. So the thing about the first Santa Claus is that it's a Christmas Carol story where he is a guy who does not have the spirit of Christmas. He makes his money off of Christmas because he's a toy sales. He's like a toy manufacturer. And by becoming Santa, he has to learn to embrace the spirit of Christmas largely through repairing the personal relationships in his life. Whereas this one... It's, like, very high concept. It's, like, Santa is having a blast, like, at the North Pole, which has all these technological systems, and everything would be great, except nobody read the fine print on his business card, which says that he has to be married by Christmas Eve, like, eight years after he became Santa? Like, why is it this Christmas Eve and not the year before? There are a lot of weird elements to the premise of this movie, and it's a premise that also then requires a lot of unbelievable romantic things, i.e. him getting married in less than a month. Okay, I'm just going to bring it up now. He is accused of having commitment issues because it took him three years to propose to someone. Three years! And his ex-wife is like, well, you just have these massive commitment issues. I can't believe it took you that long to propose. What? I mean, that would have been longer to propose in, like, the 80s when they would have gotten married. Yeah, but I feel like even in the 80s, it wouldn't be like, wow, a psychologist says he has, like, clinical commitment issues. And it's like, even in the 80s, that can't have been a level where people would be like, you have a real problem. Yeah, I think maybe if, like, maybe after a year they were like, we should get married. And he's like, yes, and then kept coming up with excuses to put it off. That would be plausible. Right. But it was just so weird, the way they treat time frames on relationships in this movie. It is strange. So, oh boy. as we said, this is a sequel to the film The Santa Claus, which, besides becoming a Christmas classic, permanently broke my brain in terms of remembering how to spell Santa Claus's name, <laughs> because I got used to seeing it with an E at the end. I feel like there is some portion of our generation that was messed up by that. It is a great name. I'm yeah, not Yeah, it's an awesome lie. name for a movie. Great name for a movie. This one was marketed in its teaser trailer as the Escape Clause, which then got dropped and used for the third movie. There were some markets where it was sold as the Santa Claus 2 colon the Mrs. Clause. Ugh. Just call it the Mrs. Clause. But then, like, if that were the name, she should be the lead. Well, she should have been the lead anyway. Yeah, Elizabeth Mitchell's good in this. She's always good. She's great and lost, the main thing I know her from. I don't think I've seen her in anything else. I went over her credits and saw that she was on Lost and V and ER. She was the presidential candidate in the election year Purge movie. She's also really good in The Expanse. Oh, okay. A show I keep meaning to watch. You would really like it. The big credit of hers that I was delighted to see was that she was on the show The Lion's Den. I feel like I've heard of that. You probably haven't because it barely aired. The Lion's Den was after Rob Lowe left The West Wing. This was like the new legal procedural that he was going to star in. And Elizabeth Mitchell was in the cast and like a pre-Friday Night Lights Kyle Chandler. Actually, David Krumholtz was on it too. And it was a legal drama about Rob Lowe. But then the network canceled it after like eight episodes, maybe less. And they were like, Here's the deal. You're canceled. Nothing else is airing. But we want you to still produce the other episodes in case one day we decide to sell this on DVD. 
because it's like 2005 and it's the peak of the DVD boom. Okay. And so then Rob Lowe and the writers were like, to hell with it. We can do whatever we want. And so they slowly, over the course of the remaining episodes, revealed that Rob Lowe's character was actually a serial killer. He was responsible for, like, all of the murders that this legal show had cited. And the last episode ends with Kyle Chandler figuring it out. And right as he figures it out, Rob Lowe emerges, stabs him in the chest, roll credits. I want to watch it. I really want to watch it. I haven't looked to see if you can, but I heard Rob Lowe talk about it on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me at one point, and he was basically just like, yeah, we decided we were going to be absolutely ridiculous. That's incredible. I do have to say, I thought you were talking about that reading show with lions. Between the lions. Yes, reading between the lions. Lines. That pun. Not the worst pun in the world. It's not as good as the Santa Claus. No. But I was like, oh, weird that she was on that. But I could see her voicing a puppet lion. Yeah. Um, many of them seem to be on YouTube. Excellent. Maybe I'll just watch the finale. Anyway, back to the Santa Claus 2. Okay. The big thing we need to talk about is, like, this movie is a Tim Allen vehicle. And it's, like, weird to think that Tim Allen was as much of a leading man at the time as he was because like now of course he is the last man standing and he like tweets about communism and how you need to read it up on wikipedia but there's a run from the 90s through the early 2000s where tim allen is a guy around which you build comedy vehicles and the santa claus is very much that this one is like the tim allen comedy vehicle on steroids because like there are buzz lightyear quotes in it and there are home improvement quotes on it like this movie is a celebration of tim allen there's a reference to charlie sheen in this movie too which did not like age well oh the joke about charlie sheen being on the naughty list yeah where i was just like what why huh it took me a second to remember all of that that happened but this is like even like this is pre tiger blood or whatever that was that's what i thought i was confused by that too so this is referencing earlier ones incidents with with charlie sheen but like there's a lot of that stuff there's even like the joke where elizabeth mitchell after their date is like hey you don't wear socks with sandals and you've never been to jail and tim allen's character is like eh. and of course santa was arrested in the first movie and the elves broke him out with like laser-powered tinsel or whatever but tim allen was also arrested in the 1970s so like everything in this is a meta joke about tim allen i have to say the casting of children as the elves the movie opens with essentially a shot of children working on a factory floor. And it's like, <laughs> cool, 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 child labor, cool, that's how this happens. Like, how childlike are the elves is very much an open question. Because they are definitely childlike in a number of ways. Like, you think about the way that Curtis behaves. Yeah, they act he's, like children. He is childish, but also they are hundreds of years old. And it's like, do elves never mature into elf adults unless they're David Krumholtz? Or is there just an incredibly long life cycle where an elf is going to live to be like 30,000 years old? Yeah, because so Curtis is said to be 900 years old. So let's put that into perspective. Curtis was born during the Crusades, which means that Santa Claus has been delivering gifts at least, like, I guess since Christ was born? I mean, like, St. Nicholas is, like, I guess alive fairly early in yeah. the first millennium. So it is entirely plausible that, like, Santa could be fully at work by the, by the time of the Crusades. Yeah. 
But then again, in this movie, they say if Santa Claus is no longer Santa Claus, the entire concept of Christmas will go away. So there doesn't seem to be a lot of Christ in this world. No, Santa does clearly believe there's a war on Christmas when he visits the high school, but it has nothing to do with Christ. It just has to do with like the Santa version of Christmas. Right. Like, this movie is fully about Santa Claus as the driver of Christmas. The religion aspect just does not come up at all. This is a weird movie. It's a weird movie. Like, we haven't even brought up the plastic dictator that takes over the North Pole. Okay, you know what? That's a weird move, but I respect it because it would have been much easier to just have Tim Allen play both characters, like, as Tim Allen, and we would understand that one is fake Santa and one is real Santa. This is, like, four years after the parent trap. They could do it. But no, they said we're going to cover Tim Allen in rubber and have him play a dictator. It's horrifying to look at. I think it's pretty excellent. I think it's supposed to be alarming, and it It works. I know, but I still did not care for care for it. I did not want to see it. My big thing with this movie, I think that the North Pole stuff is a big problem. You know, we talked about how the elves are weird. Like, there's the weird thing of, like, the football sequence. What's why? going on with that? Why? What was What? Will. Why? What was it? Will. So why? This movie posits that Scott Calvin, our current Santa, introduced football to the North Pole, which itself seems dubious. Because they make toys for children, so I feel like they're pretty in touch with things kids like, which includes sports. On top of that, when they play football, it appears to be, like, 1 on 11. Like, the elves have an entire offensive line just against Santa. Honestly, I was thinking about the Twilight baseball scene during it. That scene is good. That scene is good. But it is still just, like, these random sports sequences unrelated to anything just dropped in the middle of these weird movies. No, in Twilight, it's to show how hot and powerful and mysterious the vampires are. Here, it's to show that Santa is fun-loving, I guess. I I guess. But yeah, so the North Pole stuff, like, we've got the football game, we've got the weird young old elves, we have, again, this is a movie where a lot of times I'm like, I kind of respect what you did, like, with Rubber Santa, I respect the use of animatronic reindeer, but they are deeply upsetting. (laughs) And the casting of, like, a rug rat to voice one of the reindeer was very stressful. (laughs) You didn't like Chet? No, because I was like, why is... Tommy Pickles laughing on screen right now. I hated listening to the reindeer. I genuinely hated it. So the thing is, like, we both mentioned Elizabeth Mitchell's good in this movie. Like, I think the rom-com half of this movie, because the, like, Santa trying to get married thing is, like, a straight-up, classically structured romantic comedy. And I think that works pretty well. I think Tim Allen is able to be funny in it. I think Elizabeth Mitchell's putting on, like, a really good performance. But... That whole thing is hamstrung by all of the North Pole nonsense. And I think you get a much better movie if Santa just says, I've got to leave to take care of my kid that everyone here knows that I have. Bernard and Curtis can run the show. You all know them very well. That's going to be fine. We leave the North Pole alone for most of the movie. And the movie is mostly about Scott in wherever the hell the movie is set with his family flirting with Elizabeth Mitchell. Yeah, because I mean, he's still a bad dad in this movie. Right. And there's not a lot of redemption there. Like the movie no, doesn't it's that seem he to... and his son are are both horny and that, and they bond over that. <laughs> the movie doesn't seem to think he is still a bad dad in this movie, but he clearly is. Yes. Cuz he's not even like on top of the absentee stuff. His behavior towards his son misbehaving is so like just such 
classic bad parenting where it was really strange to watch him be like you promised not to misbehave i'm so shocked that you continue to misbehave without me ever attempting to investigate the root of the issue and address what you're feeling well that's part of my thing where i think this is the ultimate tim allen vehicle because i think it's made the pivot from in the first santa claus where that behavior is explicitly presented as bad and now we've pivoted into like angry old man last man standing zone where he just doesn't believe that he needs to understand his child i guess right and that's why on last man standing his kids keep getting recast i can't believe that show is still on they recently announced that i think it's next season will be its last i enjoyed home improvement not gonna lie i've never seen it i feel like it was on at the same same era as when i was watching reba a lot sure i watched a lot of these like family sitcoms Home Improvement is part of, like, an incredible stat for Tim Allen that there's a week in the 1990s where he was the star of the number one show on television, Home Improvement, the number one movie at the box office, The Santa Claus, and he had the number one book on the New York Times bestseller list. So the thing is, it's like, I obviously disagree with everything that he stands for as a person, but I don't hate all of his acting. But I, I think hated Galaxy Quest him is an incredible performance. Like, that is the best Tim Allen performance. Which one? Galaxy Quest. Yeah, but I just could not stand him in this movie, to be honest. Right, and I think this is the performance that is closest to him besides Last Man Standing. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. The more Tim Allen is allowed to come through, even though Tim Taylor in Home Improvement, like, that is based off of his stand-up. But I guess it's toned down more in that show, where it's just, like, a normal family show. Yeah. So, The Santa Claus 2 opened on November 1st, 2002. November 1st is a little early for a Christmas movie, because it's coming out the day after Halloween. Especially one so specifically Christmassy that is called The Santa Claus. Uh, there's a specific reason it opened when it did. Okay. So, it opens at number one with $28 million, ahead of The Ring, I Spy, Jackass the Movie, Ghost Ship, and Week 29 of My Big Fat Greek Wedding. The reason that the Santa Claus 2 opened when it did is that two weeks later, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets comes out. Ah. And so, like, when that has the Thanksgiving slot, normally you put out your Christmas movie roughly at Thanksgiving because that's when people are starting to put stuff up and then it's in theaters with reviews for the month of December. But if Harry Potter is opening in your Thanksgiving slot, you don't do that. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. But, like, it made plenty of money. It went on to make $139 million in the U.S. They made a sequel. There's a Which third. I have never seen. Yeah, I, like I said, I grew up on the first two a ton. I have never seen the third one. It's called The Escape Clause. Like, I think Martin Short plays Jack Frost, who I oh, think is trying yeah. to take over the role of Santa. Yeah, Jack Frost wants to be Santa for some reason. Maybe he eats elves. I've seen nothing to make me think that that is true, but I've now decided it's because... Martin Short as Jack Frost eats elves, and he wants to be able to do that. You know what I kept thinking about throughout this movie? What? What happens if a gay person commits manslaughter and kills the old Santa? I assume they become Santa. Why would they not? But do they then have to marry a Mrs. Claus? Like, what if a gay man becomes Santa? Does he still have to marry a Mrs. Claus? I mean, I really don't understand how the Mrs. Claus thing works because I'm confused about the number of years that it took to trigger it. Yeah, it is a weird, it is a very poorly worded clause. Uh, and of course, it's not valid in the state of Utah. Oh, God, that was so Which I think weird. is a Mormon joke. Yeah, I guess. But I would, I would hazard a guess that a Mr. Claus could be, like a Santa Claus could be married to a Mr. Claus. Yeah, I mean, I don't think Tim Allen would ever think about that. Especially not in 2002. Yeah. It was just something I thought of. No, it's a good question. Um, I'm trying to think of other things I had to say about this movie. 
I mean, I think that we will get to talk about a lot of the weirdest stuff if we dig into the romance. Like, the biggest thing that doesn't really connect to the romance is military dictator robot Santa Claus. Yeah, that part is so bizarre. This is, like, a perfect example of, like we mentioned earlier, a movie where people decide to go in on an elaborate deception that is unnecessary. Because, again, I think it would be entirely defensible to just put Bernard in charge. But instead, they build a robo-Santa to run the North Pole while Scott goes back to find a wife and take care of his kid. And the robo-Santa decides that he is the real Santa and establishes himself as a dictator. Right, because every kid is bad. Yes. He decides that there are no good kids. and They're ev- all getting coal. They're all getting coal. And that's where, like, that's the half of the movie that I think is just, like, nonsense hijinks. It is robo-Santa who gets most of the Tim Allen quotes from, like, Toy Story and stuff. It just feels a lot more hectic than what I think is a pretty serviceable rom-com. Yeah, I feel like that part is fine. It's not good. But I think the parts that really made me hate this movie are the North Pole parts. You're right. Like, the back in the U.S. section at worst, would be, like, a perfectly solid Hallmark Christmas movie. Yeah, it would be fine. It would be fine. There's nothing that good about it. It is still weird that he also has 28 days to get married. (laughs) Right. It's such a high bar. Like, we couldn't have discovered this back in July. Yeah, I feel, and this will come up when we rate the film, but I feel like this movie easily could have just taken more time, too. Well, no, because then the desantification process would have been complete. I mean, they could have just slowed everything down. Like, he could have bonded more with his son. He could have taken more time to get to know Carol if it had just been a couple months instead of 28 days. Worth noting that this series does double down on Christmas names because our lead has the initials SC for Santa Claus, and now Mrs. Claus has the first name Carol. Yeah, it's a lot. Her name is Carol Claus. There are so many Carols in Christmas movies, aren't there? Yes, there are. Anyway, every week we break down the romantic plotline of a film into five points. So, Will, why don't you guide us through the romantic plotline of the film The Santa Claus 2? Okay, so really our romance begins when... Curtis, played by Spencer Breslin, discovers that despite the fact that he is obsessed with the rules of Santa and carries the Santa Claus rulebook around with him all the time, he has missed what Bernard tells us is the most important rule in the history of Christmas, the fact that Santa must be married. Well, well the cardholder acknowledges the woman of his choosing, true love, not valid in the state of Utah, holy matrimony. I gotta get married! If it was the most important rule, why would it be written so small? And again, why does Curtis not know this if he's the rulebook expert? Seems like Curtis should spend a little less time rocking out with little Christmas toys in the reindeer barn and more time doing his job. Yeah, he's bad at his job. He's no good. Also, while doing research for this episode, I discovered that in 2012, Spencer Breslin put out a rock album, which includes a track that has a spoken word segment by Jesse Eisenberg. I had nowhere to put that in the episode, but I needed to say it. The people need to know. Yeah, uh, I might even put it at the end of this episode. It took me a while to place him, but I finally got Bernard as the kid in Adam's Family Values. Oh, I mean, it's David Krumholtz. We talked about him last summer in 10 Things I Hate About You. He's the, like, budding men's rights activist who walks us through the different groups at school. Right. I just, like, I just watched Adam's Family Values again over Halloween, so it just took me a while to connect those, but once I did, everything finally clicked into place. Sure. So anyway... What Curtis discovered in the rulebook was that Santa needs to get married by Christmas or else he won't be allowed to be Santa anymore. Which, 
to me raised a really interesting question of how the next Santa is then picked. Because I assume, my assumption is that Santa cannot die, but he can be killed in this universe, which is how Scott became Santa. Right. But if the seat of Santa is vacated, like, what happens? How is the new Santa chosen? He isn't. Like, Christmas will end if he doesn't get married. Or they could kill him before Christmas. Yeah, they could just have him lined up to be murdered. The murderer would become the new Santa. Yeah, just have someone who's already married kill him. Or, like, anybody, and then it resets the clock, presumably. Yeah, I guess the idea is that a lot more people were married. Like, the past Santas were probably already married. So the Mrs. Claus took effect. I wonder how many Santas there have been. I would love to know that, honestly. Yeah. We need the, like, deep lore on the Santa Claus universe. Give me more. More lore. All right. So that's really point one. Santa has to get married. He is already desantifying. He's losing weight. His beard is shrinking. He's looking more and more like Tim Allen. Right. Point two. Point two. Do you like Shania Twain? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> The best thing about singing at Christmas is the Coco, Carolyn, and Fine. You know that one? Yeah, I know that song. Oh, 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 yeah, go that's... totally Yuletide. Taking yeah. a sleigh ride. Good. Santa shirt, ranger skirts. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, oh. Hey. Scott gets back, and he discovers that his kid Charlie has been put on the naughty list because he's been spray-painting anti-Christmas messages on his school. Because he's mad that his dad doesn't spend enough time with him. He's mad that his dad doesn't spend enough time with him, and he also, like, later in the movie gives this whole, like, bad, tearful speech about, like, kids talk about how cool their dad's jobs are, and my dad has the best job in the world, but I can't tell anyone! It's really weird. Like, it's really weird. It is a, a fairly bizarre speech i really think they should have just doubled down on the fact that he doesn't see his dad enough yeah that should have been the issue instead the issue is that like he's obsessed with his dad and can't tell anyone about it right charlie's also having a hard time because he's like 13 and he's getting horny for the first time yeah he's falling in love with his best friend so scott shows up at school as charlie is being suspended for his vandalism and he immediately goes to war with the principal who he's clearly met before yeah and she also is, like, not a great principal because the way she talks to the parents is very aggressive. Yeah, which isn't great. I I honestly, I think she's okay with Neil, uh, with Judge Reinhold, and with Charlie's mom. Yeah. But she clearly has this existing antagonistic relationship with Scott. And I think it's because she thinks he's a bad dad, which is true, and he's obnoxious to her. Yeah. I love when he's like, why don't you have any Christmas decorations? And she's basically like, because I want to fund our arts program that the government's probably trying to cut. And he's like, that's no excuse. Money should only be spent on Christmas. He's like giving a speech about how the kids are vandalizing the school and becoming delinquents because there's a lack of Christmas cheer around. It is bizarre. Right. And this is where I'm like, oh, classic... 2002 war on Christmas. Ugh. So, uh, she's mean, but Scott is able to talk her into giving Charlie community service, ultimately, instead of suspending him from school. Meanwhile, he gets set up on a blind date with a friend of his ex-wife's. And this (laughs) scene is incredible. Oh, God. It's Molly Shannon showed up to do her Molly Shannon thing. Wearing a sweater that has Tim Allen's face on it because it's Santa. And he's, like, into it. Yeah, they're, like, having an all... They're having a, like, believably awkward first date. Yeah, but it's normal. Like, normal awkward. It's normal awkward, and it actually seems like it's pretty good until she decides to start singing. And she sings a version of 
Shania Twain's Man, I Feel Like a Woman to be written about Christmas. And she sings a lot of it. She sings a lot of it. Very loudly. (laughs) Very loudly. She gets up and starts, like, dancing around the table. And then at the end, when Scott doesn't fully appreciate it, she's just like, wow, I really put myself out there for you. I really put my heart on the line, and you just reject me. He's like, if you can't support, like, a working woman, then there's no point in continuing this. And then she runs out, and it was insane, but honestly kind of incredible. It's fantastic. And that's the thing, like, that's what the movie should be. Yeah, there should be more than one bad blind date. Right, and we should be getting that instead of, like, the weird puppets in Santa's office. Yeah, and cut the f***ing football game. You mean both of the football games? Yeah. Oh, God. Because each Santa gets to play football. That is true. Anyway, this basically brings us to point three already. The one thing I want to throw out is that before Scott goes on his date, he starts reassuring Charlie that he'll be fine by saying, your old man was a legend in high school. I was a double letterman. I had a Mustang, which still feels like Tim Allen bragging about what a cool dude he was 30 years ago. Yeah, it was wild. So yeah, that brings us to point three. And I'd wake up in the morning, and the cocoa would be gone, and the cookies would be gone, and the cot would be must, and the carrots nod. Nod. And no, they don't nod carrots. They swallow carrots whole. I mean, they, if they're good, fresh carrots, they'll eat them like that. They love red bell peppers, too. Some, you know, the stories, if you read. <laughs> um, I don't really understand how he and Carol ended up on a date. So... Okay, when he made the deal where Charlie wouldn't get suspended and instead he would do community service, she effectively said, I will only make this deal if you come and help out because I need adults there. Oh, right. So he shows up at the community service stuff. He brings her an empty cup of coffee because he's a nice guy. And he knows that if she had a hot cup of full coffee, it might burn her hand. So he shows up, he gives her the empty cup of coffee. And they then like have a nice chat where they're just like having a nice time talking to each other. And they realize like, oh, you know, we're both humans. We are of the same species and we feel feelings. Oh, that's right. The escalation is then that night. He knocks on her door and is like, hello, would you like to go get noodles with me? A weird move. It is a a bold move. But it works. I, I recognize that like he is on a time crunch for losing his job, I guess. Yeah. You gotta go big. At this point. You shoot your shot. And so doesn't he, like, take her on the sleigh on the first date? So that's when she's like, I cannot go get noodles with you. It's the faculty party. And he's like, well, I'll drive you there. And she's like, but then I would have to get home. And he's like, I'll pick you up. And she goes, your plan is to drive me there and then drive me home. Like, you're my mom from a school dance. She's like, nah, just, like, come to the party. Effectively as her date. Yeah. They don't say that word, but it's clear that, like, that's basically what it is. Like, she's agreed to do that based on their friendly enough interaction at Graffiti Town. Right. It's clear that she, like, doesn't have much of a personal life beyond school. And it is the saddest Christmas party. Okay, gotta acknowledge, though, on the way there, as you said, he had a sleigh because he has ten units of magic and proceeds to burn pretty much all of them this night. If he runs out of magic, he can't go back to the North Pole. But apparently he can. Yeah, I guess it's like he can't magic himself back to the North Pole, but we have no reason to believe he can teleport because he needs to take the reindeer to get to the U.S. Yeah, but I guess the reindeer... But no, because the reindeer only can't fly because it ate too much candy. Right. So I'm not sure what the magic units meant at all. Nothing. Nothing in this movie means anything. So he magicked up a, like, horse-drawn sleigh to take them there, and there's hot chocolate, and he magics up some snow to fall on them. It's very sweet and charming. They talk about their Christmas histories. 
They show up at the bad party, and then he uses even more magic to give everyone the childhood gift they want. So it just turns into a big old shrinky dink party. And then they kiss. <laughs> yeah, she gets into it. He also magics up some mistletoe because it seems like the kiss is going to happen, and he wants to make sure that it happens. That was a bad use of magic. Yeah, it was a waste. They, she was going to kiss him. Yeah. Then he goes home with her. He goes home with her. They're like hanging out. She does a great like flop across the back of the couch, which I always love. <laughs> then she lays out her incredibly low standards for men. Right. Well, he starts being like, you have to know some stuff about me. And she's like, I really do not. We have been on one date to a work party. And he's like, no, I have to tell you. And yes, she gives out the standards of no socks with sandals, no criminal record. Yeah. Which for first date, honestly, fine. Yeah, bar should be low for I guess she's date. really not expecting marriage at this point, because no one should be. Well, the thing is, she should be, because it's only like, I don't know, a week till Christmas? Yeah. It's never too easy to track how much time is passing, except that at the North Pole, there's like a ticker going across that tells you how many days are left. Right. And that's when he reveals that he is Santa, and she thinks that he's making fun of her, because she had said that she was like a big Santa believer as a kid. And would get in fights at school with kids who said Santa wasn't real. And again, as you said, the Santa isn't real argument is a hard one in this universe. Right. But I think this brings us to point four. I'm Santa Claus. What? The suit. The red suit's real. The North Pole is a place. There are elves. Elves make the toys. And they're beautiful. And it's all real. It exists. I exist. It's not funny, Scott. It's magical, Carol. Okay, cut it out. I'm telling you the truth, Carol. I told you something very personal from my childhood, and now you're making a joke out of it, and it's not funny. It hurts. Oh, yeah. Point four is the fight. Yeah. Um, Because she's angry with him and throws him out. She's like, you're making fun of me. And so then he leaves. He's very sad. He's like, I was basically in love with this woman that I went on a date with to a work party and kissed once, maybe? Oh, but he also is seen by his son there. Right, and his son gets mad at him, like, why are you dating my enemy? And he's like, I'm not dating your enemy anymore. She doesn't want to see me anymore. Then they put on an elaborate heist to capture the Molinator, which is what the Tooth Fairy now wants to be called, so that he can fly them to the North Pole. And then somehow... His son and Carol also end up at the North Pole. They do the same thing. The Tooth Fairy flies them in, and Charlie, like, gives a grin where you can see one of his teeth is missing. Oh, God, he sacrificed a adult tooth for this. Apparently not, because then at the end, when, like, Scott gets fully re-Santified, Charlie gives another smile, and his tooth is back, and I'm really not clear on how it happened. Uh, continuity error. That is how it happened. No, the movie draws attention to it. His teeth, like, glint. I guess his dad used- wants you to notice that his tooth is restored. I guess dad used Santa magic? I guess. All he wants for Christmas is his old tooth back instead of two front teeth. All right, so point number five. You say this is happening all so fast. But you've known me your whole life. But you'd known me your whole life. When you were little and alone. When you were little and alone. Santa. Santa. I could take it from here. Santa was always there for you. And I will be there for you as long as you continue to believe in me. Charlie goes to Carol and is like, my dad actually is Santa. If you shake the magic snow globe, it will prove the reality of Christmas magic. I'm not entirely clear on what happened there because in the first movie, the idea was the magic snow globe would summon Santa. But that doesn't happen. She just looks at the snow globe and then is convinced that Santa's real and that it's Scott. Yeah, I guess it like gives her brain blast. So they fly to the North Pole they defeat Soviet Santa, and then Scott's like, hello, um, I need to get married, 
Like, right now. Or else I'm not going to be Santa anymore. And he gives, like, a very creepy speech. When she's like, I barely know you. And he's like, you've known me your whole life. I'm Santa. It's, like, very creepy. I can't decide if it's better or worse that he was not Santa when she was a little kid. Yeah. I think it's better. I think it's better. I really want to know if there is, like, some Santa ancestral memory, given the ways that he cites, like, two adults, like, this is what your mom called you, and these are the presents you liked as a kid. Like, does he inherit the knowledge of past Santas? I guess. It's probably in a book somewhere. Yeah, he, he just doesn't strike me as much of a reader. Yeah. Oh, boy. Anyway, she is convinced by the you've known me your whole life speech, and they get married right there on Christmas Eve. Um, and then Christmas is saved. Yay. Yay. It was not the year without a Santa Claus. And then there's like, she dances in the credits, and it's very bizarre. It's a lot. I didn't care for it. It's not bad. It's just like kind of weird. Yeah. She's like got chubby cheeks now, like chubby Mrs. Claus cheeks. Anyway, that's it. (laughs) Yeah. Do you find the romance of the Santa Claus 2 believable? Absolutely not. In no way is it believable. They go on one date. They go on one date, and then they get married. And they have an incredibly hostile relationship before that one date. Like, they're very hostile. They have one, like, perfectly polite interaction, a very nice date, and then they get married. Oh, boy. So every week we do rate the movie on a scale of 1 to 10. Where would you rate the Santa Claus? It's a 1. It's a 1. This movie is a 1. There's no debate. (laughs) Again, they go on one date. It's a good date, but you also need to weigh that against the clear years of hostility. Yeah, they do not like each other before this. Do you think that Scott or Carol is dateable? Carol? Yeah. I like Carol. Yeah, but also she she decides to get married after one date to a man she doesn't like, so no. That is a a concerning judgment element. Uh, Scott, absolutely not. I don't want to date Tim Allen. No, he's terrible. And he is just Tim Allen in this movie. Yeah. Do you think that Scott and Carol will stay together? You know, here's the deal. I think they have to. they will. I would love to see what this franchise did with Santa (laughs) and Mrs. Claus splitting up. Because I would love to know the magical implications. The divorce clause? Yeah. The Santa prenup? (laughs) If you did have to choose one person to date, who would you choose? I have no idea. I have no idea. There are no good characters in this movie. Like, what are our options? Our options are Santa. I guess his ex-wife seems normal enough. I was working my way to, like, Judge Reinhold, maybe, but he's pretty annoying. Yeah, it's clearly the ex-wife. She's nice. She's very supportive of everybody around. She is a mom in a live-action Disney movie. Yep. All right. Last question. Many of the films we have covered have been turned into musicals. Do you think the Santa Claus 2 should be made into a musical? Absolutely not. No. Because I'm concerned that the musical version of it would lean harder into the North Pole. Yeah, there would be way too many group songs with the elves. Yeah, I don't need that. All right, I think that's about it for the Santa Claus 2. What a deeply weird movie. I, and I, I it's just funny how not. many times I've seen this movie and not appreciated how strange it is. I did not like it. Yeah, this is one where I'm like, I think this might be out of my rotation now. Yeah. I don't ever want to watch it again. That said, like, if it's a person who has never seen it, I kind of recommend it once for the weirdness factor. Yeah. Like, you need to see Rubber Dictator Santa. It is very strange. But next week, we'll be covering a movie that is... I I know nothing about this movie, (laughs) except that Eddie Murphy is in it. It's a classic 80s Eddie Murphy comedy with a sequel coming out. We're watching the original Coming to America. I'm really excited to watch it because I have not seen it before. Have you watched it? It feels like a good thing to wrap up the year with. Have you seen it? I have not. Oh, I'm excited. But until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. 
gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Reviews on Apple Podcasts in particular help new people to find the show. All right, last question. What is the best piece of dating advice we got from the Santa Claus 2? Oh, boy. Um, I don't know, man. I guess not a lot of not a lot of dating actually in it. Be straight up magical and use your magic to manipulate the person's emotions. Because that's the only thing he does. Um, I'm going to say be charitable to awkwardness in first date scenarios, which Scott kind of tries and fails at with Molly Shannon. But Carol is very open to where she keeps that low bar for their first date. Yeah, I guess keep a low bar for first dates. <laughs> yeah. Well, all right. There you go. There you go. Until next time, I'm a ginger. And I'm gay. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye-bye now. We work hard on.